Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Last March, when the world locked down, Mackenzie Scott was two weeks into a European tour behind Silver Tongue, her fourth album as Torres. She and her band were suddenly faced with the prospect of being stranded on the other side of the world, and out of options, Scott asked her fans to donate money for emergency flights home. The response was overwhelming. By Saturday, March 15th, she was back in Brooklyn, grateful, exhausted, and apprehensive. Torres's new album, Thirstier, is, by design, Scott's most joyful yet, bold, grungy, and melodic, focused intently on light and not shade. It reflects the outlook that Scott worked hard to develop in the months that followed lockdown. Without a major project to work on or a tour on the horizon, Scott adjusted to domestic life with the person she loves, in the home she loves, in the city she loves. She wondered what point there was in conjuring up a new fantasy of the future when she seemed to be living in a fantasy already. She perhaps wouldn't think of the chain of events so straightforwardly. On Silver Tongue, she sang wide-eyed about falling in love with her now fiancé, the artist Jenna Gribben, in a past life. On Thirstier's Hug from a Dinosaur, she goes even further, singing about dissolving clocks and vivid memories of a future that might have happened already. Scott was taught as a kid, growing up in a devout Christian household in Macon, Georgia, that existence was linear, and that heaven was only open to those who followed a narrow path. Her albums have, increasingly ecstatically, rejected that notion. Earlier this week, I spoke to Scott about that cancelled tour and the struggle to be creative in lockdown. But mostly we talked about time, space, past lives, and the joy she wanted to express on Thirstier. So, congratulations on Thirstier. It's like a really amazing listen. I guess I wanted to start with the immediate aftermath of the last record with you in Berlin. You seem to be at the eye of the storm in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of musicians were going through similar things, but you were trapped in Berlin effectively and without the means to get home. I know you've spoken a little bit about it already, but looking back now, 16 months later, what was that experience like? I mean, I think it's so surreal that that even happened. (laughs) But also when I think about it, it's immediately grounding to think about the fact that like the people that I asked to help me helped me and they did it very quickly. Like, you know, literally I, I asked for financial help from fans to get my bandmates and I home and they did it so quickly. And it was like, I, you know, I just, I don't know what I would have done otherwise. So it's like, you know, it's very surreal and blurry and all of those things, but it's also just like, damn, people are so great. Like, like that's what's at the heart of that story is how wonderful people are like in a real time of crisis. Yeah, you get home. I guess that would have been like three, four days after. I considered the day the NBA shut down to be the day that things kind of really were real. And then it was like, oh shit, this is happening. So you got home that Saturday. What were those first few days after being home like? You're just sitting around and coming to terms with, like I assume you were sitting in Brooklyn and coming to terms with the fact we were gonna be shut down. Um, I was so depressed, (laughs) but also it was so nuts because the, you know, I had been traveling for like 72 hours or something insane. And then within like 45 minutes of getting home, my girlfriend just randomly passed out in the shower um, and busted her head open. So we ended up in the emergency room like for hours that night after I got back from, you know, Russia. <laughs> um, so it was like, you know, 
I was depressed like later in the week, but for, for most of that week, it was like, I, I wasn't even, I mean, it was so confusing. It was like, what's happening? We have to stay in our houses. Like what? We can't go outside without a mask. What's going on? And then my girlfriend is like, you know, she has stitches in her head with a concussion and she's so out of it. I mean, it was just, it was nuts. All, all we could do is just lay in bed and watch movies for, you know, not just a week, but probably like a month we did that. I, I hate when anybody ever said anything about any sort of silver lining with COVID, but you had been pretty steadily working, recording, touring, lurching from one thing to the next for years and also for a, a huge part of your life with Jenna. Was there something sort of nice about being in bed for a month and watching movies? Yeah, I have a really hard time not moving all the time, just like moving around constantly. I feel like half the time I eat my meals standing up and like, I just have a, a lot of kinetic energy to use, I guess is what it really is. Um, and so I struggle with that, you know, just sitting down or laying down in the middle of the day and just relaxing and like, yeah, doing something fun, like watching a movie. Um, but then once I decided to just lean into it, I found it to be pretty easy, actually. <laughs> it just took a, it took me a few days to lean into it. I guess I never felt like I had a, an excuse to just lay in bed with my girlfriend for days on end, watching the Criterion channel, like just eating and drinking and smoking weed. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, It was great. Yeah, I mean, it ended up being great in that way. We've had conversations before about you coming off a really difficult run after an album with label complications and coping with depression and anxiety. Last time we spoke, you had sort of considered quitting music altogether before before writing an album. How quickly this time did you come around to the idea or, or get that first creative spark with Thirstier that you, you wanted to sit down and write again? Uh, I think it was probably almost two months after getting home from that tour. You know, it, it was maybe a month until I was like, all right, I have to start thinking about it. And then it was maybe two months before I was like, and I'm gonna stop thinking about it and start doing it. <laughs> I was slow moving there for the beginning part. Um, it was a choice. I made a decision. For one, I just got so tired of being in my brain. I was like, so I'm naturally, in, you know, a depressive slash anxious person. Um, the anxiety was, you know, really winning out more than anything at that time. I just got so tired of being in my brain, like sitting with myself and not, you know, not doing anything. I was like, Mackenzie, like you have to go make something or else you are just useless. Like you're not contributing anything. So I just made a choice to uh, to make a new album, but it wasn't like, oh, I have so much to say. I'm gonna just pour out my heart and just see what happens. It was very intentionally a choice to just make something again. On Three Futures, and I know this was a, a fairly long time ago now, but 
you were really in love with New York and you'd really found something spiritually about New York that you'd fallen in love with. New York was obviously a very different place this time last year, 15 months ago. That must have felt like quite a loss to be mostly inside and not engaging with things. Like you've spoken before about falling in love with people on the subway, having this like immediate empathy with people. You you feel like you've really come to love crowds and and the, the busyness. And, and that just all sort of evaporated. Yeah. And it's like, I feel so extra grateful for that reason that Jenna, my partner, like that we live together and that I got to spend all of this time with her because uh, you're right, you know, being in New York, I naturally self-isolate. But the thing that I've always loved about New York is that it feels like you've got all these friends around, you know, like even if you're not actually talking to anybody or, or you know, ha- sitting with anybody, uh, actually, you know, actively engaging people bustling all around. It, it always feels like you got somebody. There's always somebody on the other side of the wall, you know. And I think that if I had uh, lived alone like I did for such a long time before living with Jenna, you know, this would have been a totally different album if I even, you know, made made a new album. I don't know what would have happened. So, I mean, I missed it on the one hand, but then on the other hand, it's like, you know, there was no FOMO. I wasn't like, oh man, like everybody's doing stuff without me because they weren't, they were like gone or just like uh, gone. I mean, like, you know, upstate in their, like in their mansion, their getaway mansions or like uh, whatever, the escape home. I want to get, deep into the album but first I mean, obviously it's a it's a very joyful album and I know that's a very deliberate move on your part there must be something about the sort of domesticity of living at home with your partner for six months and that shift that we talked about you've been on the road a lot you hadn't really had this prolonged period where you could be like a live-in partner with somebody how much of a an adjustment was that for you mentally? I, I can say from firsthand experience that for the first couple of months, I went to live with my girlfriend in Toronto and it, the first couple of months were like, oh, we're, we're extremely living on top of each other. Like, this is this is it. Like There is nobody else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I learned some things about myself. I definitely felt pushed in the sense that I recognized pretty quickly that you know I had to learn how to be that person a, a good domestic partner or else I wouldn't have a domestic partner. <laughs> you know, it was challenging. I mean, it to the point where it pushed, you know, it pushed Jenna and I into couples therapy. I don't mind talking about. There were things that I needed to work through and lessons that I needed to learn. And I mean, the big thing for me is, you know, never really having been forced to like reckon with my energy. The thing that I get called all the time and have my whole life is intense. And, you know, I've always struggled with that label because for most of my life, I've felt like that carries a really negative connotation, intense or or aggressive. I get aggressive sometimes, which is all, you know, even worse than intense. (laughs) And energetically, like, I realized that I take uh, so much space up in a room and you know, my girlfriend, she just, she's so porous and it's like any over the top energy, you know, no matter what it was, you know, she, she was feeling all the time. And so she was like, ah, I got to get out of here. You know, I'm going to go paint now. I'm going to go to my studio. You enjoy your day. Um, and, uh, you know, I just had to like learn how to really rein that in and like channel it. And I think that was Honestly, part I think it's what kind of started my sort of desire to channel that 
intensity into making this record. Like, okay, what if I like force this to just like mold to my will, you know? <laughs> And, um, and make it something that like feels good so that when I'm in a room with people, they feel good. You've spoken about the fact that this is a very intentionally joyful record. Is that what you mean about molding it to your will? Yes, it is. Like, like making a, a very conscious choice to, you know, not just lyrically and musically, but just energetically choosing to infuse the new record with that kind of life that I was sort of trying to mimic in my um, home situation. How difficult was that as a writer? Was there a real change in process that you had to go through there? Were you thinking about your writing in a different way? I think that I just kind of, I do have kind of a tendency to expose like darkness or like talk about things that are uh, maybe a little disturbing or like, you know, like as a kid, I would always want to look up like serial killers and stuff. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, I have a natural um, tendency to be curious about kind of the underbelly of, you know, human nature. Um, but I think maybe, you know, that just became, you know, at least for the time being a little played out in my work. The course that that kind of took was that I, I maybe became somebody who didn't necessarily write about things that are uplifting or that things that make you feel good or like, you know, wonder and joy and like all of these things that we kind of deem um, cheesy, like in the abstract, which is what I did. I was like, oh, that sounds corny. But then when I really thought about it and kind of focused on the specifics of like what that might look like as an album, it felt like maybe something that I should try and pursue, like just, you know, maybe just as an experience experiment at first. What happens if I write about love in this way and it doesn't take a, like a dark left turn? And uh, what, what happens if I sing something really earnestly and don't try and like make it too clever, you know, or like throw a joke in there or something like a wink and a smile. What if I just like am super earnest and the life will sort of come through and like people will feel that. So that's what I tried to do. first song, Are You Sleepwalking? I don't want to misread the record or put two and two together and make five. But it's a pretty bold statement sonically and lyrically to open a record with. I mean, your, your vocals come in pretty much straight away at the start of the album. There's no messing around. It seems one way to read that might be that you're asking yourself that question and that this focus on joy and positivity, that it really opened something up to you quite quickly within a pretty short span of time that this sort of sleepwalking through, maybe fixating on darkness. It seems like you maybe just removed obstacles for yourself by doing this. Yeah, I mean, removing obstacles is actually a great way of looking at it. I think a lot of times, like maybe I've had the opportunity to play to certain strengths of mine, like as a singer, as a writer, and rather than play to those strengths, maybe I, you know, maybe it was my age or, you know, just kind of being defiant and wanting to skirt expectations, which is, you know, something that young people like to do. You know, I maybe didn't play to those um, strengths in the way that I could have because of those obstacles. And there was, 
you know, a slight fear that I had going into making Thirstier that, you know, doing the, the quote, easy thing that I might get laughed at or, you know, if, like, wow, can I really just come in with these power chords and like, you know, sing this melody over and over and like not, I don't know, obscure it somehow? Will people like be into that? I think that I had a, some mental blocks there. But then, you know, once I made that decision to just kind of go with my my instinct, which, it, it, you know, that right there always ends up serving me, just going with my gut. You've recorded in England a handful of times. What is it that keeps taking you back across the ocean to increasingly unlikely places as well? You've recorded in Stockport before, this time you're in Devon. What, what keeps driving you back to England to, to record? <laughs> it's Rob. It's my dear Rob Ellis, my beloved friend. He's so special. I don't know. I just can't quit him. <laughs> we really love working together and he always makes it work. Like whenever I want to work with him, he's like, all right, let's figure this out. You know, he's just so willing to, um, you know, really bend over backwards to like make records with me uh, whenever it feels like, you know, it's not going to be doable for whatever reason because of time or, you know, funds or whatever it may be and specifically this time around it was like okay well it's super not safe to fly you over here to record with me like at the height of this thing so you know i like doubled up on my n95s and got on an airplane and went to him um did a two-week self-quarantine before recording and which <laughs> ended up being actually right during that quarantine ended up being during the um U.S. election, so that was super fun and <laughs> lighthearted. That little stint in isolation, uh, and uh, yeah, then we we went to Devon, and it was actually amazing to be there. There's a confidence on this album that probably hasn't been. It's been present in flashes before, but you, you do seem a lot freer in places. And I, as you were saying, melodic, leading with power chords a lot of the time. How confident were you in that from the get go? that this was going to be sonically just a more, maybe louder, maybe more open, more welcoming and joyful sounding album? You know, I had a lot of fun making the demos at home when I was writing it. After I heard what those were shaping up to be, I, you know, I think the melodies um, on this one just naturally lend themselves to being sonically more open and, you know, all of the things that you just described. Uh, so yeah, I guess as soon as the melodies were born and I, I heard the demos back, I was like, wow, this really sounds like something could be made of it, you know? Like like the, these demos are not amazing, but I think that these songs could be amazing if they were recorded the way that I'm really like wanting to record them, and which is where, you know, Rob came in. I was like, if Rob plays drums on these songs and he helps me just like, you know, blast these songs into outer space, like, They'll soar. They'll totally soar. What comprises all this joy I feel and where was it before? Ancient and eternal and surreal as a hug from a dinosaur.
So there's a moment on Hug from a Dinosaur, well, I mean the whole song, which seems to be something that you've been playing with for a while and, and at times like even quite openly expressed, like on Last Forest from the last record, you say something jogs the memory that I've loved you repeatedly. Like this idea of, of time being not even circular, but maybe more of a spiral, that it doesn't move in a straight line. How conscious were you when you were making it that you were picking up on a couple of old threads like that, particularly with these songs about love and expanding on them and building on them and maybe maybe sort of revising or clarifying thoughts that you've expressed pretty clearly already? We have talked about this and I wasn't always a person who um, thought like that about time. My perception of time has been totally changed in the last, I would say, 10 years or something like that. I, well, I guess I could say my perception of time has become kind of diametrically opposed at this point to the perception of time that I was raised to... Um, you know, to think of like, you know, time, you know, you're born, you die. And then if you're a Christian, you go to heaven forever, you know, like uh, pretty cut and dry. And, uh, you know, obviously I've gotten way away from, from that. I, we don't have to get too deeply into it, but, you know, just on that thread, like I, I've, I'm someone who has had periods of having dreams that to me felt like they were past life memories or perhaps memories of a, you know, a future that hasn't happened yet, or, or even like a, you know, a deja vu from like a parallel dimension that's running, you know, alongside simultaneously, something like that. Like I've, I just have had dreams where I just felt like they were not just dreams, but, you know, actually tied to a reality somewhere. And, you know, again, that's super abstract. But then when I met Jenna, my, my girlfriend, I had just the week before been to see a, a hypnotherapist who specializes in past life regression. <laughs> Which, um, I know that that, you know, to many that will sound totally bonkers, but, you know, I was really struggling at the time because as you know, I was having these, you know, these very real visions that I, it was really interfering with my ability to like perceive, you know, the, my waking life from all of the rest of it. The short story is that I saw this past life regression hypnotherapist and I did this whole session and I have a recording of it. You know, I was, and he was asking me about my most recent, you know, vision or whatever you want to call it. And you know, I, I said that I, I, there was this person, she was this woman and she was my lover. And, you know, I told him this whole thing. And after I told him about her, he was like, do you know this person in your current life? Is this somebody that you know right now or not? And I, and I, you know, I wanted to say yes so badly. Yeah. I wanted it to be like the person that I was currently seeing. And I was like, no, actually, I, I gotta be honest. This is not someone I feel like I know. And then, you know, it wasn't like five or six days later that I met Jenna, I was like, holy shit, you are this woman that I dreamed about. And it was like, it was insane. It was like what I described in this recording. I went back and listened to this recording from this session that I had. And I described the apartment that I didn't even live in yet. I described the curtains that I didn't own yet. I described an outfit that I would be wearing. And then, you know, sure enough, like this, this whole scene that I had envisioned thinking it was a past life vision, it ended up actually being a something that happened in, in this life, you know, just a, a few, a couple of years later with Jenna, it, this whole scene that I had described and I was wearing the exact outfit that I had described and everything. And, you know, the white curtains that I described were blowing behind and like, it was really, really surreal. So, you know, <laughs> all of that, it just contributes to this c continuation of like this idea that I have that time, we, we know nothing about 
the reality of time. This is just the one dimension that we're aware of, the one timeline that we're aware of. But I just like playing with the unseen, I guess, in the lyrics. I like playing with the idea of the unseen and like giving it a grounding in reality in the same way that, you know, we consider ourselves to be grounded in this reality. This is a very important part of this record and, and seems to be naturally bound up with that. The way that you've talked about fantasy in the lead up to the record and what makes it onto the lyric sheet of, about fantasy. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but it seems like the the standard way that we deal with time or have dealt with time is you, you fantasize about something and then you get there and then you want to move on to the next fantasy. Okay, cool, this is great, but now I'm going to need, on just a really basic superficial level, it's like, cool, I have a two bedroom house, now I need a three bedroom house with a backyard. But obviously there's like a spiritual component to that as well. And it seems like something quite remarkable to have been able to effectively, once you've achieved that fantasy, or in your case, realized this vision that sort of came to you quite naturally, that you can just continue to exist in this loop of this vision, that you don't need to chase the next thing. Is, is that as much to do with the passage of time and our lack of understanding of time as, as everything else? Yes, I mean, I think so. And you're really astute. That's honestly exactly what I was getting at. I find it so frustrating. And that is in our nature, you know, as humans, obviously, we're, we're very milestone based <laughs> people. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not impervious to those sort of like inexhaustible pursuits. It's just that actually, I don't find that to be satisfying. Like, it's actually not satisfying to me to like you know we we will we'll reach a goal we'll accomplish a dream and then and then we wonder why we're like depressed after like you know like post-coital depression <laughs> essentially and it's like well maybe it's because that wasn't fulfilling to just like get there and then be like yep did it <laughs> you know maybe that's not actually what's fulfilling like maybe what's fulfilling is like all of the hard work that you put in to get there, all the people that, you know, you met along the way, what, you know, whatever, like people wonder why they're depressed. And I guess I just, I, I have that in myself and, um, and I just really wanted to play up this other idea that maybe hasn't really been explored a lot in popular art, which is like, can we like turn this into a sustainable idea? Like, let's talk about sustainability. <laughs> so you've got to the top of the mountain, but you just kind of want to enjoy the view. Exactly. Whatever that may be. I mean, for me, it's like finding this person that I love so much that I want to spend my life with. And like, I'm in a home that I really love being in and, you know, I, that I don't take for granted because it's, it's like the nicest place I've ever lived. And it's like, you know, my career, it's like, obviously I'm always reaching for the next level, the next best thing. But also I, I want to feel good where I am and like, you know, be be present and be really content with where I, where I am at the same time and enjoy the view. This comes up on Keep the Devil Out. You're really breaking the fourth wall a little bit. You're talking in the second person, talking about the fact that 
you want to externalize this. You want other people to be brought into it. You want other people to be able to feel that kind of joy and, and you, for your music to be used like that. Beyond making an album that does sound joyful and these lyrics that do sound joyful, how do you go about doing that? It seems like the route that you've taken to get here has been complex and spiritual and odd and has taken odd turns. And now there's a just a, okay, I'm opening this up. I, I want other people to be able to feel it. How, how, how do you go about it? You know, the music is is such a reflection of of the personal for me. So like, I guess where I am in my life right now is that I'm finally ready to be someone who connects with other people. <laughs> that may sound obvious, but I simply never considered it <laughs> before. <laughs> I simply never thought of myself as somebody who might want to let people in or, you know, be vulnerable in any way, like maybe with a lover or something, but, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a great lover. Anything else, I kind of consider myself to be like really terrible at it. <laughs> I don't know. I used to think that was because I kind of tend to put all my eggs in one basket, but actually I don't think that's true. I think that I really just, I told myself that, but I really, I've just closed myself off to other types of love. And, you know, I think I just decided that I don't really want to do that anymore. And also it's, it's kind of the funny thing of like, when you're, you know, you're someone who makes things like I make records and it's like, for so long, I, I was thinking I could just, you know, make things and put them out and they would be received and it would be like, okay, that's it. Like, I, I don't have to do anything in return to like, you know, open myself up to receiving or anything like that. This is just like, it's a one way street. And I think actually that people can feel that, like, but I didn't recognize it before. I think people can really feel when someone is like, got a real wall up in that way. And, and it may even keep them from receiving like the music in the way that it was intended, which is, you know, the last thing in the world that I want is to actually like hinder someone's ability to receive the music because that's really the thing that I feel that I have to give. It's like my one big contribution in this life. And so I think just recognizing that and and trying to just very slowly peel back the layers and open myself up very painstakingly, I think people can feel that. And I think that it encourages more of a kind of a give and take and like like more empathy and more communication. And I think that it ultimately... Um, deepens, you know, fans' ability to receive the music the way that it's meant to be received. Well, that's a beautiful place to end, I think. Thank you so much, Mackenzie, for making time and talking to us. This is, I think, like we're on a streak now of four consecutive albums I've interviewed you for, which is great. So we'll just keep this going <laughs> forever. It's great. Thank you for always making time for me and like literally always asking the best questions, the esoteric questions. I appreciate it. Thank you for like spurring those on. Your music asks interesting questions, kind of demands it. But yeah, and congratulations on everything. And are you touring this one? Like, do you know when you're going out on tour? I, I'm supposed to be touring um, September and October. I, fingers crossed. Good luck. Hopefully I'll see you out at one of the shows. Thank you very much, Alex. I appreciate it. See you later, Mackenzie. Bye-bye. That was Mackenzie Scott in conversation with The Fader. Torres' new album, First Year, is out this Friday, July 30th, via Merch. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Loughton Audio for providing our microphones. 
You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow The Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader interview. Goodbye until then.